Welcome to our classroom. In this space, we talk about education, which is inclusive of, but not limited to, what happens in schools. Education is taking place whenever and wherever we are willing to learn. I am your host, Roberto Germán, and our classroom is officially in session. In this episode of Our Classroom, we are joined by David Bowles, an associate professor and coordinator of the English Education Program at the University of Texas, Rio Grande Valley. He is the award-winning Chicano author and translator of some 30 books. Among them, They Call Me Guero and My Two Border Towns. David's academic work and activism seeks to empower Latinx educators and their allies in the fight for children's literacy dignity. He presently serves as vice president of the Texas Institute of Letters. With us today, David Bowles. Hey, welcome back to our classroom we have a special guest here. All the guests are special, folks. Uh, let me make that clear. Uh, but we have a guest here today that I'm connecting with for, I think, the second time. I think we met at NCTE years ago. Uh, but it's, it's been a while since we've had conversation. Um, certainly, this connection on the social media platforms, on Twitter and whatnot, and Lorena's uh, more connected to you. So, David, thank you for being here. It is my pleasure to have you on our classroom, and I'm excited to learn from you and with you. Likewise. I, I love this podcast, love the work that, that you do, that that y'all both do. And so, yeah, super happy to be here. Thank you. Thank you. So we'll go ahead and just jump right in. Uh, your, your writing draws me in for a number of different reasons. And you address themes such as immigration and life on the border, which is of seems to be a focal point uh, for you. And I'm, I'm I'm wondering why is this a focal point and who are you writing for? And one of the reasons I'm asking is because I lived in Texas for seven years. So when we moved from Massachusetts to Texas, I got to see some different things and I got to hear some stories from people and I got to experience some of what they were going through. Uh, and when I refer to them, I'm talking about individuals who either live on the border or were crossing the border, uh, particularly youngsters. There's a lot of youngsters that I was in contact with through a particular organization. And so I have a, a big heart for individuals who experience life on the border and, and who have stories that perhaps we're not we, the general public, may not be as familiar with, and as a result, might not have as much empathy. And then the second reason is because my parents immigrated from the Dominican Republic. So the the story of a family leaving behind their culture and, and, and coming over and adapting to culture in the United States, that hits close to home, even though I did not grow up and live on the border. And so these things I noticed in your writing and it's drawn me in as a reader and I'm interested to learn more. Yeah. I mean, you've touched on some things that are really important to me, but kind of like at the heart of my reason for exploring border stories and immigration stories is, uh, you know, the fact that this is my community, um, my family on my dad's side, the Mexican American side 
has lived in this transnational community of you know the Rio Grande Valley and then the northern part of Tamaulipas, the Mexican state, to our south for a couple hundred years. Uh, uh, many of them came with um, Escandon um, under when this was all New Spain. Um, you know about several dozen families, both mestizo and indigenous Tlaxcalteca, came up out of the Saltillo area and settled here. So we've been living here for a long time, and um, our traditions, our way of life, um, all of these particularities that are so important to me and that are not reflected in a lot of literature and entertainment and haven't been my entire life until really recently and then only a trickle they're the things that i want to share with the world and you know primarily i want to share it with other mexican americans especially young people from my community so they can see themselves centered and celebrated in the pages of books and the um the ins and outs of of our lives uh, depicted that way but also for people who are not from this community so they can understand our essential humanity i think that a lot of people tend to think of the border as this kind of like post-apocalyptic landscape uh where like tanks and like mad max warriors roam around and, and and causing havoc and so forth when in reality it's like this really peaceful loving community and you've been to south texas you know how this is um but you know one of the things that increasingly has been um a focus of my concern uh is the way that immigrants are treated my wife is an immigrant from mexico she came across in her 20s um a few years before we met and the way I've seen her treatment get progressively worse over the three decades that we've been married and the way I've seen immigrants in our community who have a place here, we easily um, fold them into our workplaces and just the fabric of our lives. But the way they've been demonized and marginalized and mistreated by people at the federal government level, but also just throughout the conversation that we're having nationally uh, is of concern to me. And so, uh, you know, also as a teacher, um, you know, I've, I, I taught middle school for 14 years and then uh, ran an English language arts and bilingual program at a local school district. And now I'm a, a professor at, at the university here. Um, and my students uh, in all of those uh, roles have been uh, a mixture of Know, long-term uh, mestizos, Mexican-Americans from the Valley, and then immigrants from both Mexico and other places, Central America and the Caribbean. Uh, and their concerns and, and the way that that national conversation that's so ugly impacts their sense of self and uh, self-worth and, and their ability to emerge as lifelong readers and writers and thinkers, you know, that is what compels me to talk about them and talk about the issues they face. Mm. That's you, you use the word demonize. And for our listeners who are ignorant, and I don't mean that in any disrespectful way, um, I'm, I'm truly using it as stating they don't know, they're not aware, for whatever the reason may be, of the way folks that cross the border are demonized. Do you mind providing an example or two? Well, sure. I mean, in, in the in the first place, there is this attitude that the people who are coming are harmful in some way to the, our economy, to our law and order, to our way of life, that they're going to somehow dilute um, some essential um, American identity by coming in and bringing um, Spanish language or indigenous languages 
um, like religious beliefs and just ways of looking at the world that are incompatible, a certain segment of our society uh, would say, with the standard American way of, of doing things and, and thinking. Um, and then, you know, like I said, there's this worry about criminality and about the motives of people who are coming here, that they're coming to try to basically snatch food from the mouths of people in the U.S. Um, in reality, these are people who are coming here mostly in accordance with international law, seeking asylum, refuge, because they are fleeing, um, you know, terrible conditions, violence, threats, and so forth in their, their home countries. And the vast majority of them are extremely honest, you know, family-centric, hardworking, although that shouldn't be, in my opinion, a, a a measuring stick for the value of somebody to this nation. But nonetheless, they are usually very hardworking who come into this community, this the strip of, you know, 60-mile strip of uh, frontera where I live, and and contribute quite a bit and make our lives better and richer and are, are good friends and good, you know, um, community members, but that's not the way the rest of the world views them. And so you get unaccompanied minors being snatched up and, and put in these really horrible conditions, essentially cages, even to this day, even under the Biden administration, put in very cold places with, uh, with like minimal comforts and just kind of made to suffer. And the same holds true with families and so forth. And, you know, many of them are forced to wait in Mexico, camping out. My wife and I go across the border all the time to visit friends and family in our border towns here. And we constantly see these people who are not allowed to even step foot on U.S. soil halfway across the bridge, because at that point, um, international law says that they can request asylum. So this treating them like they are a danger to the U.S. as a justification for keeping them away when ethically morally legally they ought to be permitted to come in um it, that is what i refer to when i say demonization thank you thank you for clarifying that uh-huh. now back to your writing how much of you shows up in your books i think a lot does i mean the border kids series um which started with they call me Wero, and then obviously has gone now to they call her fregona um the the main character, the narrator, the, the boy who writes poems and is telling his, his these stories, um, is probably about thirty percent drawn from me. In fact, a lot of his actual experiences, especially in the first book, are basically pulled from my childhood and brought into the present time. Because I'm fifty two, obviously I'm not twelve. Right. <laughs> um, but I would say, and then a lot of the rest of him is taken from my son who's now 21 and lives in Austin, uh, going to college there, but was a teenager when I was writing the first book. And other young men and boys that I've worked with over the decades here in my community of Donna, um, which is about 20 minutes from a gallon, for those who don't know. And so I wanted to, when I write characters from the border, I often, you know, will pull from my own experience and from the experience of others because there's an authenticity that derives from that, right? When you when you want to write about the the experiences of members of a community, when you are a member of that community, pulling from what you know, what you've seen, what you've experienced, what others close to you have experienced, is the best way to authentically depict that um, that community and those types of people. So definitely, I mean, that that's that's why I do that. Um, and of course, as a result, my characters tend to be 
a little bit like me. They t- tend to be like light-skinned Mexican-Americans who are part of a community of color without being of color themselves necessarily. Um, you know, having indigenous heritage, but having it be, you know, genetically not obvious and, and things like mm-hmm. that and grappling with colorism within the community and like what that what that means to be 12 years old and realize that while your community is being demonized and othered and so forth, you within that community um, experience a privilege uh, as a white pre- presenting person to move through the world. And then you have to decide what you're going to do with that because you can't renounce privilege. Privilege just comes and is there. Um, and as a young person, that's a really tough thing to face. Like you, you maybe don't want privilege because like in, in my family and in many other Mexican American families, there are people of varying shades of skin tones uh, because of our mixed heritage. And I have my brother Fernando is, is really dark skinned. My brother Mateo is a little bit lighter skinned um, with um, hazel eyes. And it, it, you just, you just know it's kind of like, it's kind of roll of a dice, a genetic roll of the dice. Um, but because of conquest and, and, and colonialism, we do have this colorist problem and I think it was we see it writ large in the elections that that just that we're just going through right now. The election, um, it's not election day; it's election season, basically. Because who knows when we'll find out how it turns out. By the time people listen to this, uh, hopefully we'll have we have hammered all it out. Um, and um, you know, I think that pulling from my own experience as somebody who grapples with that privilege and, and has to navigate. Um, the way I'm perceived in my community and outside of my community, all that complexity gives a richness to my characters that otherwise would be missing, which is, you know, the, the argument for writing what you know and writing within your lane and, and an argument against people who are not from the Latino community or from the Mexican American community or the Dominican American community from writing as primary characters for his protagonist. Uh, people from our community, if they don't, you know, belong, because they won't be able to, they won't be able to capture those nuances. I appreciate you naming that, particularly the colorism piece, because I feel like that's still a conversation that we need to dig deeper into within uh, Spanish-speaking groups, within yeah. the Latino community and whatnot. It, it's a conversation I'd love to see us push even further. I agree with you. It's it's it, there's there's a reckoning that's been, been centuries in coming um, that needs to be grappled with. And I, like, lit- I mean, you know, again, I, I, I'm it's kind of depressing to talk about election results a little bit. But when you take a look at you know what's happened in Florida and to some degree what's happening in South Texas and a couple other Southwest areas with um, Mexican Americans who who, you know, the, their proximity to whiteness is like really intoxicating and pulls them into conservative. It's not, it's not the only thing. I mean, there's also like religious, you know, faith-based concerns and so forth um, that draw, that pull them towards conservative, conservative um, voting patterns. But I still think the color is in the heart of it. When I see the results in um, Georgia and see how many, um, you know, gente Latina decided to vote for Kemp instead of Stacey. Like, I just know in my heart, because I know my community, that colorism had something to do with that. It was a factor, not the deciding factor, maybe, but it was a factor. Absolutely. Um, where you're, you know, where certain Hispanics, because that's what they would usually call themselves, 
are more likely to vote for a white candidate uh, than a black candidate, regardless of the particular positions of either candidate. And that is depressing. Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's so much there to unpack. My goodness. Um, <laughs> But not the scope of this episode. (laughs) Yes, yes, absolutely. Uh, Maybe at NCTE. (laughs) We can sit down and have coffee and let's chat it out. (laughs) Absolutely. So how how do you balance writing for children while also infusing the profound topics that you address? Not just in your books, but also on your social media platforms where we see you, you go real deep on Twitter. Yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, it it is. It's a very interesting juggling act. Um, especially when I'm writing for like much younger people, um, you know, it's with, uh, border kids poems with Wero and Fregona, um, you know, it's a little bit easier. I'm writing for an audience of kids who are, you know, on that verge of adolescence and they're beginning to kind of push back a little bit. And so they're open to an exploration, a nuanced exploration of their community and the fractures within it and, and so forth. And what, but when I'm writing for younger kids, it gets really, really tough. So, you know, um, my two border towns, my first picture book, which just won the Tomas Rivera Mexican American children's book award. Felicidades. Um, gracias. Gracias. Is also dealing with these kinds of things, but the way I was able to accomplish it, I think was couching the difficulties of, asylum seekers and refugees being trapped between Mexico and the U S in terms of the beauty of being able to live in both those towns of, of being in a transnational community. So I spent about three quarters of the book kind of like celebrating the amazing textures and flavors and nuances and, and joys of being a border kid. Um, and then kind of have that twist at the end where we see, you know, children like camped out on the bridge and just show the boy, the the main character's kind of dismay at this. Like he he's been going back and forth now for six months with his particular family living on the bridge from from Cuba, um, and he's made really good friends with the boy, and um, he was like learning Cuban slang and stuff like that. Um, and and he's he gets along with them really well, and the two of them would be such wonderful friends if they were neighbors. And like he wants desperately for this boy to be able to come across the the bridge, and then his father has to have that you know the hard talk with like, yes, there is room for him in our community, and yes, it's unfair. I agree, it's unfair. Um, but you know, hopefully things will change, and and when they do, and they're allowed to seek refuge in our country, our we'll greet them with our arms wide open, and then the boy. I mean, there's some kind of hope. So the idea is you give children hope. You. You're, you're honest with them about the complexities, um, couching them in terms that kids can understand, and then you give the kids hope. Because the last thing you want is to like damage children by saying, hey, you know, the world is a really terrible place, and lots of kids your age are suffering, um, and they will continue suffering forever. I mean, you don't want to do that. It's, you know, that's that's a posture that would, that would mm, you know, have an opposite effect from what you want, which is to have kids um double down on their like their essential humanity like little kids are some of the the most just ethical humane um beings on the planet and it's something that we kind of like slowly carve away at um as as they get older until they become you know sometimes callous and and cynical you know the way you were able to 
I'm trying to find the right words. I don't want to say tone it down, but adjust. The, the way you're able to adjust to the audiences is, is quite masterful. Yeah, I've been working on my young adult poetry book, and I'm not going to lie. I've, I've struggled at times in terms of bringing it down, or at least certain sections of the book. And I'm like, all right, you know, I, I like to be up here and, and get real tricky with the language, but I'm also you know, speaking to audiences that at times that that might be a little too much and they need a lot of something simplistic, yeah. uh, something they could digest easily. And also something, as you just stated, that leaves them feeling encouraged, you know, because some of the pieces that I'm sharing, they're not going to do that because I'm, I'm sharing my reality also. Yeah. Um, which and is not not that sometimes. it's all yeah yeah right yeah. I was gonna say it's not all gray, but you know I I don't want to hide that reality at the same time I do want to offer some hope so I you know I appreciate the way you are able to to adjust for your audience so that you know it, it gets across the message that you want to get across that it, it reaches them and and a tone and language that they could really receive uh, while also pushing their thinking. Cause your, your writing does that. Yeah. It accomplishes yeah. that. So, and I, and I think that like in, interweaving and, and thinking of thinking of a, of a poetry collection or an album verse is kind of like a quilt um, where you, you know, you can have this narrative thread that goes through the ups and downs of the typical, typical narrative and you weave into it moments of joy and distraction and, and just silliness or just whatever, just to try to balance things out because life is all those things at once. You know, you, you can be like dismayed at a particular thing that you see on social media in the morning and then have a joyful breakfast with family and then pivot to like trying to solve a problem in your community um, and then trying to respond to some like negative press while then maybe wrapping up at night with something joyful. Like, I mean, you know, every single day is just this constant um, complex interweaving of of moments and and capturing that in a way that's you know that has verisimilitude that has like realisticness in it in a novel and verse is tricky but oh when you nail it you know it, it feels you know you feel like wow and you can do that the same thing with language right you just you can have some tricky complex language that really pushes the the pushes kids to the very edge of their zone of proximal development and then you then you back off and have something like lighter and and much more accessible. I mean, ultimately, I think you'd probably agree that poetry should be the language of the people and not the language of some ivory tower or academia or scholarship. And and um, the, is as much as we can like open that up to people and make them feel comfortable, so that when we do challenge them, they're like, okay, I'm with somebody I trust. And you know, Roberto's gonna challenge me. But pues yo confío en él. Everything's going to be okay. He's got me by the hand, and and you know, we'll get on the other side of this really dense language. Um, so yeah, that's what I would recommend. Not that you're looking for a recommendation from me, but yeah. No, no, lo recibo, cien por ciento de acuerdo. So as it relates to your most recent book, they call her Fregona. What were you thinking about as you were writing the part of the story when the ice raid happens? Yeah, I mean, it, that was inspired by something that literally did happen um, in the early years of the former guy's time in the White House. And um, it, it was just so shocking to me. Um, and and it, 
you know, it would have been shocking even if it had just been like a single incident. But there were multiple incidents of ice raiding, um, you know, factories and fields and all these things, um, snatching up uh, families without any kind of thought for their children. I mean, you, we would hear, you know, report after report in 2017, 2018, and 2019 of kids who just suddenly show up at home and their parents are not there and they don't know what's going on. And finally, you know, neighbors or family members who find out about the, the raid come and check on the kids and, you know, and they're cut off from their parents. It's like the, the most horrifying thing in the world. Um, and in our own community, that's what was happening. And I wanted to grapple with, you know, how that feels for a child that's in that situation, but also like what it does to the community especially when maybe part of the community is supportive of those kinds of things. Um, uh, and so it was, you know, in the first book we have um, Guero really kind of like celebrating his family and community and kind of like falling in love, not just with poetry, but with the ways in which it allows him to celebrate everything. And then in the second book, I want to kind of, I wanted to like, like basically pull up a flagstone and flip it over so we could see like all the, ants and and cockroaches and stuff crawling under under the in the underbelly right um and the ice raid is a, a way for me to to that's like the metaphorical flipping of the flagstone in the book uh and at that point the you know book which has been really joy, relatively joyful and grappling with you know kind of like you know middle school kind of issues it, it suddenly becomes really heavy and everybody's life and all the things that have been going all the threads get tinged with sorrow um and there's still moments of joy because joy doesn't stop but everything is you know now kind of flavored differently and um when your joys and and moments of great crisis become bittersweet right um it is it's this weird alchemy that happens Mm, deep 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 thank you and thank you for sharing even that part of the the story and and bringing a real situation to text so that the audience can grapple with that. I think the more that we talk about these matters, the you you've mentioned a, a few times the term essential humanity. And I think the, the more we can really work towards that, right? Drawing people into that essential humanity, then hopefully we could have honest conversations about these actions and how they impact people and communities. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, it's, it's important because otherwise um, these, our communities are erased from the national conversation. They're out of sight. um, And it's easier than for people to, um, to not see us as human and, and then to not feel brokenhearted when tragedy befalls us. Cause they're like, Oh, you know, well, those, they're not, they're not us. <laughs> right. So if you had an opportunity to have lunch with any author dead or alive, who would it be? And why? Yeah. Oh man. That's a hard question. Or I mean, <laughs> there's so many, but I, just because, his work is on my mind, and I recently spent a bunch of time with his family in San Marcos. Tomás Rivera would be, I think, my pick today. Um, his book, Ino se lo trago la tierra, Earth did not devour him, um, really opened the door for people to write about young Latinas with, you know, honest complexity and literary dignity. 
in a way that up to that point, because most of the books written about, you know, Hispanic teens or, or, or Latinx folks um, had, were written by people who weren't from the community. And they were usually kind of like didactic. And the message was always, you know, in like in the 60s and 70s, well, I guess the 50s and 60s was always, you know, you have problems, but if you would just learn to speak English well, if you would just, you know, dress this particular way, cut your hair a particular way, ape the norms of, you know, white um, Anglo um, society, um, everything would be fine. And that was invariably what would happen. And it was this book that was like, yeah, that's a bunch of nonsense. <laughs> in reality, um, you know, the things that, that in this book, young Mexican-Americans are grappling with can't be solved by just assimilation. They are problems that um, assimilation will only exacerbate. And so it, it's it's a great book, really timely to this day. Um, and I, I always recommend people revisit it. It's not written in a way that we would recognize as being middle grade or YA, despite the age of the character. Um, it really, I don't think that Dr. Rivera was thinking um, in those terms when he was writing this book. It's more of an adult book with a young protagonist. Um, but its relevance in the fact that it, along with um, Bless Me Ultima by Rudy Anaya, um, and and then you know several decades, uh, well, at least a, a decade and a half later, um, Sandra Cisneros House of Mango Street. These are like key books that inspired a lot of of my fellow Mexican American uh, kid lit writers to to be involved. Um, but that was that's the urtext. That's the first one, Tomás Rivera y no se lo trago la tierra. Written in Spanish originally, which is something that happens less and less and less in U.S. Um, uh, letters and U.S. literary um, engagement. And so, um, yeah, I would love to pick his brain. I would love. I would probably just spend my entire time just like, like, fangirling over him and whatever, because he was just such a brilliant man and just so eloquent both in English and in Spanish, and um, with such a big heart. Just. Uh, you know, there's a reason that this award, the Tomas Rivera Mexican American Children's Book Award, is named after him because he like literally did open that door. So amazing, amazing. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that and inspiring us to go read some works by Tomas Rivera. David, where can folks follow you? Sure, they can totally find me on social media. Um, especially if they want to <laughs> Be challenged in lots of interesting ways. Yes, um, yes. It, it, it's uh, it's at David O. Bulls, uh, both Instagram and Twitter. Um, I have a Facebook account where I I don't post as often, but yeah, Twitter is it, Twitter is my it's my thing. Um, we'll see for how much longer, but it, right. I'm gonna stick I'm gonna stick around until until Elon Musgo me bota la fregada. Well, I was gonna uh, wait until then. He, he's gonna have to throw me out. Um, I say, come on, Titanic. Yeah. <laughs> Seeking, and I'm going to be like playing my little yeah, yeah, violin. Yes. Yes. The, um, band, and the then, band keeps playing. It's going to be, yeah. There's a whole bunch of us like activists that'll be there like until the very last minute. We're like, all right, now jump on the door and see how many of us survive. Uh, <laughs> well, I'm not, not going to be like Jack. I'm not going to be in the water. I'm going to be uh, on the door. <laughs> yeah. No, the water's going to be. All the Titanic fans are like, oh. Is it too soon? Um, and then my website, <laughs> davidbulls.us. So you can check okay. me out there too. Well, David, thank you so much. Appreciate your time. It was so insightful to hear from you, to learn a little bit about how you approach your writing, uh, to dig into your books. 
um, wonderful works. I know we have a couple copies over here of of Guero and Fregona, and you know they are staple characters in this household. Well, I appreciate that. Um, appreciate the the support and um, friendship and collegiality, and uh, to you at NCTE, bro. Absolutely, can't wait. And uh, we'll have to dig in over coffee. You mentioned I, yeah. yo, bueno, yo tomo café con leche. También. Okay. okay. So, it'll work just fine. Um, <laughs> un abrazo a, a Lorena and uh, see you very soon. Thanks. All right. Take care. Peace. Bye.